Bavaria. It's where German-style efficiency meets a more laid-back approach to life. We're heading to the south of Germany today on Travel with Rick Steves. We are already considered as Italians. We enjoy our siesta in the beer garden. I'm Rick Steves, and coming up, Daniela Wiedel guides us around Munich and other highlights of her corner of Germany. The rhythm is a little bit slower. Unlike other parts of Germany, Bavaria is more Catholic than Lutheran. Catholic enough to be the birthplace of the current Pope. It's also home to some classic German traditions. Lederhosen, pretzels, and beer. No, we don't drink already beer when we are children. Well, we try maybe the foam, yes. <laughs> With Daniela's help, we'll figure out how to navigate the crowds of Oktoberfest, attend the famous medieval passion play in Oberammergau, or just take in the postcard-perfect scenery of the Bavarian countryside. And we'll hear from listeners whose travels have led to some amusing encounters with the language and customs of Germany. We're tapping into the Bavarian side of Germany in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Something I like to stress when I'm trying to understand uh, Europe and help others understand Europe is that oftentimes we're not looking at the countries we think we're looking at. When you think of Germany or Italy, those were not countries, really. In the middle of the 1800s, Germany was 20 or 30 proud, independent little countries in 1850 and only united around 1870. And when we go to Bavaria... We're seeing a very proud culture that's not necessarily German, but Bavarian. The Wittelsbach family ruled them for six centuries or something like that. You're looking at the crown jewels and the parliament building and and the triumphs of Bavarian civilization, not necessarily German. To better understand Bavaria, we're joined by a Bavarian tour guide, Daniela Wiedel. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. So when you think about Germany... um, what was it like in 1850? Uh, there was a, a handful of independent countries. Yes, um, in yeah, 1850, you have uh, something what was called the German Union. It took until about 1871 until we speak about the unification of the German lands. Now, if I ask you, what nationality are you? What do you think? What goes through your mind? What is your loyalty? Mm, I will say my nationality is uh, German. Uh-huh. Um, very quickly afterwards, I would say, yes, I'm Bavarian. That uh, would be coming together with German, and of course I see myself very much as European. Now you're a a young, mobile German, so you do think the European Union is something that you would celebrate. Uh, I think it's a generational thing, isn't it? Younger Mm -hmm. people would be more comfortable thinking of themselves as Europeans? Yes, absolutely, I think so. And older people might even think of themselves more like, I'm Prussian or I'm Bavarian or Tyrolean or something like this. The American image of Germany, I think, is... Bavaria. If you ask an American, mm-hmm. what is Quintus? Close your eyes and think of Germany. <laughs> the American thinks of Bavaria. Yeah. Why, have you found that in your tour guiding? Very, very much. Um, Why is that? Well, when when I ask people, so what we we go to Germany? What are your ideas? Then we talk about the pretzel and the dirndl and the mass, the big beer. And um, I have to say then that is all wonderful as long as we are in Bavaria because these are Bavarian images. If you would ask uh, a person from Hamburg, let's say, uh, where are your lederhosen, then this person would be shocked probably because uh, people from Hamburg or Berlin don't wear lederhosen. Now that's interesting. The lederhosen, and, the leather short pants yes. and the suspenders and the yeah. dirndls that mm-hmm. the women wear and the pretzels yes. and the big beers, so the, ein liter, is, one mass, that's Bavaria. Bavarian. Yes, and you find that in Bavaria, so only in the south, southwest. Um, why uh, Americans have this image of Germany, I'd say it has to do with the occupation uh, after the Second World War. Okay, uh, so 1946, the Allies are picking up the pieces after World War II. What happens to Germany? 
Well, it's divided into four segments, four parts. And in the southwest, the south-southwest, we have uh, the American occupation zone. And yeah. so this is where a lot of the Americans have learned what and got to know what Germany is like. And these are the southwestern or Bavarian, particularly Bavarian uh, traditions, mostly. Thousands of Americans, uh, obviously, were stationed in Germany after the war and primarily in Bavaria mm -hmm. because the French and the English and the Russians would have had their sectors also. Mm -hmm. Now, I was just traveling in the south of the United States, and there were a lot of German war brides mm -hmm. that were living with their American husbands, mm -hmm. mostly in the south. I've, I've, not, I've not encountered this anywhere else. Yeah. And they were younger than uh, getting married during the war. Uh, this was afterwards. What's, what's the understanding in Bavaria about uh, what happened with this movement of a lot of German people? When I look at, for example, my parents' uh, generation, my father is now 75, he was born in 35, my mother born in 40, admire American culture and the Americans for this generation, it is really after the war when the Americans came. The, the German people felt liberated, at least that's what I hear also a lot of this generation felt liberated and these are the Americans, they brought the chocolate and uh, they brought happiness back to the people and so... Um, the picture of uh, America and the Americans is very, very positive uh, in that generation, absolutely. I think, yeah, the older <laughs> Germans who remember the very difficult time after the war, apart from the whole terrible war episode, yeah. but yeah. after the war, when yeah. people were literally going hungry. I mean, it yeah. must have been incredible. It was the a lot of times the American GIs and American um, compassion that would help get people through these hard times. Mm -hmm. I have a friend in Rotenburg named Frankie, mm -hmm. and he was born in the late 1940s. This is a very American name, Frankie. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No. He, he's called Fra yeah, Frankie, Frank Frankie. Yeah, Not, yeah, 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 it's actually the American Frankie. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any, why would that be? Well, because of, I think, the reasons that I mentioned, because of the admiration for the American culture, for the American friendliness and openness and the support that the Americans brought to the Germans uh, after the war. In, war. People would name their children American names? Yeah. Um, people of that generation are big fans of... Uh, American culture or uh, stars Frankie's, as Elvis. Or, or Frankie Sinatra. Uh, yes, this Frankie Sinatra. probably Sin named after Frankie Sinatra. Absolutely. Or John Wayne. John very, Wayne. Very big, you know, very because there's big. two Germans I know that it makes this illustration, John and Frankie. And yeah. they were named in after the war, inspired by American pop stars or movie stars yeah. or GIs. Yeah. Absolutely. It's yeah. a beautiful thought. Mm. I'm Rick Steves. We're speaking with Daniela Wiedel, and we're talking about Bavaria. Not Germany, but distinctly Bavaria. Now, Daniela, you grew up in Bavaria. Tell me about the different dialects in Germany. Uh, if somebody is in Berlin and hears you talk, do they know where you were raised? I'm, yes, they will hear right away that I'm from southern Germany, and um, has to do with the pronunciation of words. We use the same words in north, south, east, west, it's the same, but... Uh, Generally, we have, of course, a couple words like Schmarrn. Um, that means um, it's difficult, <laughs> actually. Schmarrn. Schmarrn means uh, what uh, rubbish are you talking? Schmarrn. Or oh, it's so that's or just it's like a, that's just crap. Don't talk about yeah, this. Yeah. Or it, we have that all in all uh, dialects, but right. uh, um, or um, just sounds also we make different. Generally, we speak our German in the south is much softer. Okay, yeah, so there's the Hochdeutsch, yeah. which is the formal High German. Yeah. And that would be different than Bavarian? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Bavarian is much softer. Uh, we speak slower often also. Can you give me an example? Because in the United States we have little phrases that, oh, you're from Texas or something. What would be a good example to make an exaggeration of a Bavarian dialect? All right, if you would say to, if uh, somebody from the north or from center would say, uh, I like you, would say, ich mag dich. 
That's in German. You say, and in Bavaria we would say imokti. 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 So yeah, ich like I. Ich becomes i. So a southern dialect. Yeah. And there's a southern character also. You have this. I mean, gemütlichkeit. Yes. Tell me what gemüt. I love the term. It's wonderful. Gemütlichkeit. Gemütlichkeit. What does that mean? Gemütlichkeit is is difficult again to explain, but gemütlichkeit. I try it with coziness. Casual sitting together, being together. I when I try to draw a picture, it is a wooden paneled room with a soft light. It's warm. Maybe you have an oven that warms up the room, and you sit together with friends or you like a lot, and you have a, a conversation, and it's a relaxed time. You have time, and um, a special conviviality. Yes. Yeah. Now, now the Austrians have this uh, very nice word also, and it's sort yeah. of unique to. Bavaria and Austria, wouldn't it be similar? Particularly in Austria, also then to uh, the Tyrolean area, which was a long time part of Bavaria. Um, but yeah, absolutely, they have it too. Now, this has been a tumultuous generation for Germany as you have united and mm-hmm. Eastern Germany has joined Germany. Bavaria is kind of an onlooker. You're the southern province. Mm-hmm. How has the unification of Germany impacted Bavaria? Well, it has is, it a, is it a good thing? Is it yeah, a bad thing? Well, absolutely, it's a good thing. Now, we just celebrated the 20th uh, anniversary of the reunification, and it is a good thing. And I, um, I'm born in 71, and for me, I have to say, in a way, we were already um, divided then, the wall was up. It was almost normal. I grew up, it, it was almost normality that there are two Germanys. And uh, now when I think those children um, are now 20 years old, so now, again, for a whole new generation, they are adults now. Uh, for them, it's already normal again it's that we normal. are united Germany. So this really is a historic anomaly that Germany is divided. Yeah, for them, it's, it's very different. But for us in Bavaria, it, we have experienced it different than the, the people that live close to the border, absolutely. But uh, still, I remember the day when the wall and I was sitting in front of the television with my parents and we were watching it and it was, well, we knew a little bit before what will go on but still it came as a surprise. It didn't have a direct impact on life in Germany or Bavaria besides, um, of course, in the bigger picture, the impact that it had of all Germans. And it was very expensive for Germany to take Absolute, in Eastern. And absolutely. This was a huge tax on the on the German yes, people in the West. A solidarity tax. <laughs> oh, is that what it was called? It was called a solidarity yeah. tax. Yeah, it, it actually still exists but the percentages came down. And, and okay. uh, Because when you drive through Eastern Germany now, uh, which is... Uh, well incorporated into Western Germany, it's got a completely new infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I found that the roads were like as good as the West mm-hmm. long before the towns were as affluent as the West. The towns still felt Eastern and yeah. slow and run down, yeah. but the freeways were magnificent all through former Eastern Germany. Yeah, I think the public uh, investment was quicker than the private investment probably in the cities. But uh, it wasn't an easy time for both sides, I think, for expensive maybe for the West and for the East to accept, have to accept maybe this financial support from the West. It wasn't easy either. But I think now we are at a point where there's still um, work to do. Um, so we come to really to a same level. Um, salaries are still discrepancies. But, um, the gap is closing? Yes, absolutely. And also psychologically, the gap is closing. That's good. It took quite impressive political leadership, I think, to Mm -hmm. push this through Mm -hmm. in the time because it was quite a sacrifice for the majority of the Germans to bring their Eastern brothers and sisters up to speed economically. Yeah. And they had to uh, be taught the Western way. I remember (laughs) it was net. That was service over there. It was just no service. And a lot of Eastern Germans went to the West to get jobs and people would 
uh, compassionately offer them jobs, yeah. and they didn't know how to really work hard or have the service that yeah. people in the West are accustomed to. Yeah, and it's, it was also a problem. I mean, it, it still is, but it gets less and less a problem that people didn't have the education uh, in the East that they could work maybe on very modern machines or modern computers or the language skills. Um, but now, as I said, those, the children are 20 years old it's now. Becoming, so now. It's, it's becoming becomes, old news, yeah. and that's good news. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Bavaria, and we're joined by Daniela Vito. We'll travel further from Munich into the heartland of Bavaria, and we'll take your calls in just a moment. Today's focus on travel with Rick Steves is on Bavaria and its major city, Munich. 877-333-7425 is our number, or post your stories about travel in Bavaria in the radio message board at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Bavaria, and we're joined by a Bavarian friend and fellow tour guide, Daniela Wiedel. Danielle, when you think about uh, sightseeing in Bavaria, of course, Munich's got to be one of the most exciting cities in all of Europe. You go to Munich and you find it's, uh, it's, it's got a, a rich connection with Bavaria, the Wittelsbach family. Mm-hmm. What does the Wittelsbach family mean to a Bavarian? The Wittelsbach, these are our kings. <laughs> um, this is our noble family that has ruled uh, Bavaria over 600 years. And so we feel very, very connected to them, particularly also in Munich, but also outside of Munich. We have a lot of architecture. Uh, we have a lot of sites that uh, remind us of their presence. And there are still actually Wittelsbachers around. They don't rule anymore. We don't have a king anymore, but they're still around. The family is still there. And when I'm in Munich, I'm impressed by the Catholicism, really, mm-hmm. of Bavaria and Munich. You know, there's, there's so many relics in Munich. And I heard that the Pope saw that Munich was sort of a bastion of the Catholic Church north of the Alps mm-hmm. and rewarded it with a lot of relics so it could stand strong against the tide of Protestant Reformation, which was the northern half of Europe. Particularly uh, during the time of the Counter-Reformation, of course, when we talk about the time in the 17th century, so 1600s. Um, yeah, a lot of relics have arrived in Munich. Together with Salzburg, I think, yeah, Munich is the Catholic domains of the Pope. Uh, and when I traveled around Europe uh, celebrating Christmas in various countries, I really found there was more spirituality in Tyrol and Bavaria, stronger faith of the uh, Catholic community than you'd find in other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Munich is more conservative, or Bavaria is more conservative, and Munich yes. is more Liberal, is that right? Absolutely, yeah. The whole southern part of uh, Germany actually is predominantly Catholic, and particularly Bavaria. But um, Munich is the little island, the little uh, progressive, progressive modern, modern uh, island so that would city. Be quite a contrast. Um, you it find is, yourself in a cosmopolitan is. city, Munich, yeah. and you drive for an hour, and you find yourself 
really in a different oh, yeah. mindset. Yes, yes. Very traditional, uh, very Catholic and traditional mindset in the countryside of Bavaria and very modern and um, progressive, as you said, in, in Munich. But only, I'd say, since the last 50 years mm -hmm. before, as said, with uh, having the bishop uh, seat in Munich and having the kings, which were Catholic also in Munich. So that would have been conservative then. So the bishops yes. in Munich, the kings in Munich. So lately, Munich has become more of a cosmopolitan yeah. city. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're joined by Daniel. Vidal, and we're talking about Bavaria. Our phone number is 877-333-RICK. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Carol's on the line from Phoenix, Arizona. Carol, thanks for your call. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> I absolutely love Bavaria, and I heard that there's a lake up further that I would like to um, go and visit. Der Kimsey, I think they said it was. Yes, the Kimsee, yeah. And you have the Herren Kimsee uh, Island, for example, where you find also another wonderful castle. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, yes. The Kimsee actually lies in between Munich and Salzburg. It's very easy to reach also. So it's like an hour and a half drive to Salzburg from Munich, and halfway there you've got Kimsee, yeah. beautiful lake on yeah. your left on the freeway, and yes. an island on the lake is one of crazy mad King Ludwig's castles. Yes. He's got yes. four of them. Most people go to Neuschwanstein. Mm -hmm. Tell us about Herren Kimsee on the, on the island there. Well, here in Kimsey is particularly charming because you get there with a, on a boat ride, and uh, it's one of the smaller castles. It is easy to visit, but it's not as uh, busy than maybe Neuschwanstein would be, the Cinderella ah. castle. Something mm -hmm. interesting right there, Daniela and Carol, is that, uh, you know, when Hitler wanted to prepare Germany to take over the world, he needed a good freeway system. He made the Autobahn so he could get his troops around in a hurry and so on, and he needed rest stops on the Autobahns. And the very first Autobahn rest stop designed by Hitler's architects is right there in Kimsee. Mm -hmm. Have yes. you been there, Daniela? Wow. Yes, yes. It's, <laughs> it's a very popular road still. And, um, it used yeah, to be yeah. an American military uh, recreation center, I mm -hmm. think. Mm -hmm. And you go in there now, and you actually, it's one of the rare opportunities in Germany to see fascist murals on the walls mm -hmm. celebrating the hardy peasants and mm -hmm. the, the citizenry that does their thing without asking questions. Social, mm -hmm. uh, what do we call that? That's social realism, I yes. think. Yes, yeah. All right, so you can still visit that on your way to Salzburg if you like. Carol, what did you like or enjoy about your time in Bavaria? Well, um, I usually stay in Bad Eibling or Rosenheim, somewhere in that area, and I love the little towns and being able to look up at the Alps and the wide-open spaces, and it's kind of country, but yet you can get to cities, and uh, you fly into Munich, and they have the Marienplatz there, the plaza. It's just, the whole thing is just great, and the people are so so great and so friendly. It's wonderful. I think you're going to have people take time and talk to and relax a little more in Munich than you might in the more high-powered north. There's just that slow down and smell the roses uh, love of life. Exactly. Yes. Daniela, do Germans recognize that also about Bavarians? Yes, they do, actually. And uh, our northern friends are from Schleswig-Holstein or Prussia. They call us often the... We are already considered as Italians. We we enjoy our siesta already. We spend our siesta uh, in the beer garden, <laughs> probably. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the rhythm is a little bit slower in uh, in Bavaria probably than in the more northern parts. Yeah. Well, there is a, sort of a cultural divide there. The the southern half of Germany is uh, sort of r relaxed, romantic, yeah. relaxed, southern Catholic. The north half is this Protestant kind of work yes. ethic and everything. Yep. And the beer garden is really a magnificent place to feel the pulse, the slow pulse yes, of yes. Bavaria. Carol, yeah. did you go to a beer garden? Um, well, a few pubs, but I really didn't get to a beer garden. Let's get Daniela's take on a beer garden. How can a tourist enjoy a beer garden? Oh, well. <laughs> just like a German You does. just go there. You <laughs> have to enjoy it. 
No, um, well, one good thing is, of course, if you enjoy beer, then that's helpful. But if you go to a beer garden, you do not have to drink beer. There are other things to drink. Um, a great way to enjoy a beer garden is if you have the time and if you have the possibility to do some shopping in the afternoon. Is it a market or is it just a supermarket? Um, you can bring in most of the beer gardens. You can bring your own food, actually, which is a wonderful way to spend your time. And then you only have to buy your drink in the beer garden. So you cannot bring that in. But... Uh, I grew up, for example, um, in Munich, and then my parents, we would spend a lot of evenings in the beer gardens. And So you uh, would go to the Victulian market, let's say, or which beer garden did you like to well, go Well, we to? went always to the Paulana beer garden. I grew up across the street from the Paulana brewery. Oh, okay. So, but you could go to the beer garden and bring a picnic from absolutely. the family. My, my mother would pack at home. We had a little basket, and she packs with the Bavaria, <laughs> with the Bavaria tablecloth and... Uh, we bring the little boards and the sausage, of course. And, Describe um, the whole picnic to me. Your mother has a very special occasion. She wants to go out, and you decide to go to a beer garden. What would she bring, and what would you order there? Well, what we would bring is different kinds of sausages, even though I have to say we eat different things than sausages. But mm -hmm. we would have different kinds of salami and cold cut and all that. Uh, we would have some different kinds of cheeses also. What we do in, in Bavaria, what we like a lot, is having little boards, wooden boards, so we don't eat on paper plates, but on boards. You don't need to have that, of course, Carol, if you go there, but um, a paper plate is fine, too. But uh, So we would have the boards. We would have tomatoes and cucumbers and little pickles. Radishes. Uh, radishes, of course. And on that, we would bring, or maybe she would have made a potato salad at home, or we would have a cold roast uh, or something. And then uh, we go to the beer garden, setting the table. While my father would go to the, what we call Schenke, um, to the bar, I guess. And uh, my father would get uh, the beer or the Radler. So oh, the girls example. or the little kids or something might have Radler, a mix of... Uh... Uh, well, yes. Well, the little kids, not. Radler is a mix between what uh, Sprite, for example, yeah, seven up, and uh, half beer, so lager beer. Okay, so, that's the light so it's beer. lighter. No? More refreshing. Yes, yes. But if you're a real beer drinker, you probably don't like it. It's too sweet. Uh, children, no, we don't drink already beer when we are children. Well, we try maybe the foam, yes. <laughs> but, well, uh, I went to a German family, and they were, <laughs> they were teaching their children with a little near beer, a child's beer. Have you ever heard children. of that? That's well, there is the malt beer. Malt beer, yeah, that was it. That's yeah. true, because it's sweet, and uh, yeah, that's true. And I felt that they're they're teaching their children to enjoy beer as part of the cuisine and not just something to go party on. Yeah. And, and it was quite interesting. It's it's a little bit, I think, also as uh, in France or in other areas or on the Rhine, in the Rhine area, you have the wine, we have the beer. And when we drink beer in the beer garden, that doesn't mean you get drunk in the beer garden. No, you go there and you drink one beer and then you have your dinner there. The and then time. you go, yeah. Absolutely. And when you described your picnic, I was there in the cafeteria line at the beer garden in my mind and I was seeing all the things that your mother brought <laughs> yes. that a tourist like me or Carol could line up and buy right there. Yep. You've got yeah. the potato salad and you've got the radishes yep. and you've got all these wonderful cold cuts and beautiful bread. Yes. Carol, thanks for your call. Well, I thank you and you have a great day. Thank you. Bye now. Thank you. Bye. Bill's on the phone in Glendale, California. Bill, thanks for the call. Mm -hmm. um, I have a, one of the first question actually, is we're going to be in, um, in Bavaria in the beginning part of May. I'm wondering about the May 1st holiday. Is that going to affect us as far as tourism is concerned? Mm, so you have a lot of people off work, so there will be many people around and uh, enjoying the sights probably. Otherwise, uh, public transportation is maybe a little bit... Lim I don't know how you travel, Bill, but uh, it's maybe a little bit limited. But generally, um, no, I don't... Th in Bavaria, no, you won't be too Maybe a little more affected. festivities. Yes, got yeah, the absolutely. May you have the maypole. The, that would be a, a, a wonderful occasion, of course, to see a maypole, a new maypole um, being put up. 
But otherwise, no, I don't think you will be very affected. At, at that time, exactly, we'll be in Munich. So On the 1st uh, of May? Hmm? On the 1st of May, you May, will yeah. be in Munich? No, I don't. You're not very much affected okay. by it. No, no. Before we go to Munich, we're planning on going down to the Neuschwanstein and Schwandorf area. And we were wondering about lodging. And it's right near Oberammergau. <laughs> I know that the play hasn't quite started yet. And one of the places that you suggested was just across the border in Austria. In Reuter. In Reuter. Well, that's a very good question. And... Um, Daniela, my hunch is Austria is a little cheaper and a little more Bavarian almost than Bavaria. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I in don't know if I can of, agree on that, but it's very down. similar. It's very, very, very similar experience. Now, absolutely. Um, Reuter would be a wonderful place to, to lodge if you want to visit the castles. So um, I, I think if you say the castles, you speak obviously about Neuschwanstein, so the Cinderella castle. Uh, and you speak of Hohenschwangau, which are very next to each other. And then, of course, the wonderful third one, uh, Linderhof, which is also very close to that area. So uh, that's a, a great location to be based. And if you have a car, then, of course, it's wonderful to visit other little towns in that area. We only have two days, so... Well, you know, I mean, um, the two castles you can do on one day and then maybe Linderhof with a connection to, okay. to the other small town in that area. All right, Bill, thanks for your questions and good Thank luck you, on your Graham. trip. Thank you. Thank yep. you. And Lisbeth's on the phone from Sherman Oaks, California. Lisbeth, thanks for your call. Hi there, how are you? Good. Jolly good. Jolly good. <laughs> yes, hello. Um, I was interested in speaking to you because I'm going to be going to the Oberammergau Passion Plays at the beginning of June, and I don't know anything about Germany, and so really I wanted to get your advice about the prettiest places to see, not so much the museums and things. Oh, that's a good um, question. Yes. Um, well, the first question would be, how long uh, do you stay in Germany? How much time do you I'm have? I'm going to be in Germany altogether for about two and a half weeks. Oh, that's wonderful. That's a, so when you're in Oberammergau, during the time when you're at the Passion Place, um, and uh, the weather at the time is beautiful, probably, you have plenty of opportunities to enjoy also the lakes and go a little bit further in the mountains. And uh, do you, will you have a car? No, when, usually when I travel, I don't like to rent a car because it seems, you, you know, you're, you separate yourself from people of that country. Yeah. So I'd rather travel by buses or trains mm -hmm. or maybe I'll take a cruise or something like that. Ah, oh, yeah. yeah, we have a great train system also. So um, I would think, even though you maybe don't go into the museums, but uh, going to Munich is definitely worth it and spend at least a day in Munich. Also, you could, if you want to, you could uh, continue on in the direction of Salzburg, if, you, if you'd like to see that, or Berchtesgaden. Um, as said, you have the mountain Herzogstand. Uh, you could take a cable car up. The There's a lot to see. You know, mm -hmm. West Germany is the size of the state of Oregon, and it's uh, laced with a wonderful train system and uh, very good buses, even if you're not driving. Elizabeth. So, uh, you know, make uh, Munich your springboard. Uh, use the train to go to uh, do your reading and see what little town you want to go to. It's certainly accessible by public transit. And uh, then you can swing uh, west through the Black Forest. Yes. And the Black Forest is very nice. And then up to the Mosul River. I think the Mosul River is really beautiful. Now, is that fairly uh, easy to do by bus? I'd suggest train rather train. than bus. All right, yes. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Good I luck. like public transportation very much. That's yes, the way to do it. And when the train doesn't work, hop on the bus. There'll be a, at the smallest train stations, you've got buses waiting to take you to points beyond. Oh, good. Oh, good. I was hoping for that. Sounds exciting, Elizabeth. Yes. Thanks for your call. I'm very pleased. Well, thank you very much for your time. You bet. Bye now. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. I'm Rick Steves. We're talking about Bavaria with Daniela Wiedel. And uh, when you think about Bavaria, you think of Oberammergau. 
And Oberammergau is famous among Americans because of the Passion Play. Mm-hmm. And 350 years ago, the plague was sweeping through Europe. All these little villages were panicking because half of the population of Europe died, literally, in a lot of towns. Mm-hmm. And they were making frantic deals with God. Yes. And Oberammergau, they said, God, if you'll, just, if you'll just spare us the plague, we will every decade for the rest of time make a great play with all of our citizens celebrating the story of the Passion. And... Uh, the plague stopped at the door of Oberammergau, and the people were saved, and they made good on their promise to God. Mm-hmm. And for 350 years, every decade, on the decade, there has been an incredible play in the little village of Oberammergau. And now, 350-some years later, it's become a huge part of the local economy. And this year, 2010, we have uh, the occasion of the Oberammergau play. A hundred days in a row, 5,000 seats filled, sold out long in advance, generally, mm-hmm. and you get a all-day play. It's in German, very old-fashioned and slow and stately. You know, it's got these uh, vignettes, right? These little tableaus, I yeah. think you call it, yeah. working through the whole biblical story. Mm-hmm. And it's something people travel from all over the world to see. Yeah. Any advice on the Oberaubergau Passion Play? Well, it's, uh, it's a wonderful... It can be the reason to finally come to the region, to Bavaria. I'm very excited myself because I go this year, too. This is your first time to see the Oberaubergau? This will be the first time. Wow, I will and see you've got passion. tickets. Yes, I have got tickets already. Uh, as you say, you better are quick to advance. get your tickets. <laughs> yes, a lot of the advance. tickets are scarfed up by tour organizers mm-hmm. so they can put them into their package and then charge whatever yeah. they like. Yeah. Consequently, it's hard to get in, just a ticket alone. Yeah. But if you're just uh, determined to see the Oberammergau Passion Play, uh, it is this year, and you'll have to wait 10 years if you yes. miss this year. Yes. And uh, But any time of year, you can go to Oberammergau, any time of the decade, and the city is, is, is very touristy. But you've got this classic sort of German painted walls and, and wood carvers and, yeah. and uh, wood carving very, shops that look like art galleries. Yeah, very traditional. I said you have the, the Lüftelmalerei. That's what we call in Bavaria. That's uh, when you have on the outside, you have often our farmhouses have uh, saints or a special theme on the outside of the wall. So you have plenty of that in Oberammergau. And it's a beautiful small town, yeah. I, I know Munich has long um, had the status of being one of the most livable cities in Germany. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, to be honest, Berlin is really where the action is these days. It's cheaper, a lot of cutting-edge stuff yes. going on in Berlin. Munich Is Munich still considered a, a very livable place? What's the, still, yes. From a German point of view, what do they think when uh, I, it's got a nickname, Millionendorf, or something yeah. like this? Yeah, it's the it's the village of millions. We have one and a half mil, well, 1.4 million people living in Munich, so obviously it is a big city. Since it is, in a way, very traditional, we have a lot of the beer gardens and small squares also. So very quaint places which give this village kind of feeling. There's a quaintness in Munich. There really yes, is. Yes, it is. And yeah. you can come into the, the English garden and you can have your picnic and go for a bike ride. And yeah. it's just a, a community living together. Before the reunification, before Berlin became again our capital, um, we Bonn was our capital. But actually the secret capital during that time was Munich for many people. And now still... Um, people have not forgotten that Munich had such a long time there, even though it's absolutely... Munich and Berlin are very, very different cities, so it is, it's a wonderful thing to maybe see the both, get to know the both. And um, Psychologically, to, they're different cities? Absolutely. Also, also yes. How, how would you though, characterize Munich and Berlin compared to each other psychologically? Well, I think Berlin, as you just said, it's very cutting-edge, it's very modern, it's very young. If you are an artist, you want to go to Berlin. But also Munich is very young, but it's maybe a little bit uh, more elegant 
elegant in a way and a little bit more prosperous also in a way. It's uh, it's interesting uh, you say elegant because when I go to beer halls, there's a lot of rough beer halls, but there's also elegant beer mm-hmm. halls. Absolutely. As you can have, for example, when we talk about the traditional costumes also, I like to compare it sometimes uh, to the kilt in, in Scotland because you have a kilt with which you go working. We have the lederhosen or the dirndl you go working, but you have also the dirndl or lederhosen, the traditional costume with which you go to the opera. There you go. Yeah. We'll finish our visit with Daniela about Munich in just a minute with a closer look at its most famous event of the year, Oktoberfest. And we'd like to hear your stories about traveling in Germany. We're at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick. That's our phone number, and radio at ricksteves.com is our email address. Daniela Vito from Munich is our guide to Bavaria right now on travel with Rick Steves. Daniela, when we think about traveling to Bavaria, of course we've talked about the beer, and you have the annual biggest beer party in Europe, Oktoberfest. Tell us yes. your experience with Oktoberfest. How should we enjoy that, or should we stay clear? <laughs> It will be difficult, I guess. It's, ma- it's a uh, madhouse. It's a Europe. madhouse, and uh, it's probably more fun if you are a little bit mad with all the people it's a, together. It's a time for crazy people to get together. It's the third Saturday in September, mm-hmm, right? And it mm-hmm. goes for a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. So it's it called Oktoberfest, but most of it is in September. Yeah, yeah. it starts in uh, normally the last weekend in September, and then it goes on for 14 days. Uh, or You have three weekends we have included. And um, how to visit it or how to enjoy it the best is actually if you can avoid going on a weekend, then okay. that would be a good thing to do if you can avoid that. Um, so you need shoulder pads if you're going on a weekend. Yes, and it is very difficult in the weekend, but it can be really difficult to actually get into a beer tent on the weekend because the doors are closed when they are full, and they can be full at around 12 or 1 o'clock. Um, and it's much more enjoyable, actually, if you have a possibility to be there in the middle of the week around lunchtime, then that is wonderful that because better. there you have the locals uh, they go there for their half chicken with their beer or radler, and then you can share the table and sit next and mix with the with the locals. That would be. A, and it's uh, perfectly permissible to sit down at a at a table with a bunch of locals. Everybody ab- sits sort of communal style. Absolutely, that's you have. To, I that's mean, you the won't get. Of it. Yes, that's uh, that's so barge right in there and sit absolutely. down. And yeah. They'll scoot over, and you're part of the party. Yeah. Whether yeah. you like it or not, you get sucked into the whole energy. Of oh, it all. absolutely! I've been. Uh, with uh, my 20 travel friends, and uh, we, we we were lucky. We got all seats together, and we were mixing in with the locals and with other tourists. It that's was wonderful. The, that's the beautiful conviviality, Gemutigkeit, yeah. of the Oktoberfest. Just for the context, this goes back to the—it's a marriage party of, of King Ludwig the First, Mad mm-hmm. King Ludwig's dad, in 1810. And uh, his father, or grandfather? Grandfather. Grandfather, okay. <laughs> it was such a good party that they decided to have it every year. Absolutely. it's uh, It was his wedding, 1810, and— 200 years later, they're still roasting uh, chicken and chickens oxen. and oxen and <laughs> drinking literally millions of gallons of beer. There's 6,000 participants uh, with these huge... How many tents do we have? 14 tents. The 14 big uh, Munich breweries are represented on the Oktoberfest, and that's... So it's all the breweries represented there. And now there's the reunification day of Germany. Mm-hmm. 
October 3rd. Is that within the Oktoberfest time? Exactly. So now the Oktoberfest always includes also that day, and that's, of course, a lovely opportunity to... This is a holiday, so a lot of people come, of course, also on that day. Celebrate. And, uh, celebrate, celebrate unification and the celebrate Oktoberfest. the great beer of Bavaria. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Bavaria with Daniela Vidal, and our phone number is 877-333-7425. Garrett's on the phone in Chicago. Garrett, thanks for your call. Oh, hi, Rick. Uh, I'd just like to mention that, you know, whenever we think of Munich, we never think of uh, Renaissance art. But when I visited Munich in 2007, we had a wonderful time at the Alte Pinacothek. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw several Raphaels, a Botticelli, some Titians, and even uh, Leonardo da Vinci. I think it was the Virgin with the Carnation. And I was really amazed because it, it, there were hardly the same crowds that you would see at the Uffizi or at the Louvre. Mm-hmm. But it was really like great quality art and I I wasn't even aware that this much Renaissance art was in Munich, you know, mm. until I visited. Yeah, that's the Alta Pinacothek, a great art gallery. Danielle, what's yeah. your take on the Alta yes. Pinacothek? Well, uh I I'm very glad to hear how much you enjoyed. I was just recently also there again. And uh, yeah, it's a beautiful art. It's the collection of our kings, what the you find. The Wittelsbach collection. And we have three Pinakotheken now. We have the Alte Pinakothek where you find art up until the 1600s, and then we have the Neue Pinakothek, where you have uh, 1700s up to the 20th century, and then we have now the Pinakothek, the Moderne, where you find uh, contemporary design. And these are all close together, aren't they? They, it, they are in five minutes apart from each other around one intersection. It's um, no, it's a beautiful museum, very well done, I think. One uh, thing I remember, I believe, is uh, like grand Rubens canvases with the little yes. cartoons right next to it. Yes, yes. Yeah. And, and Rubens would have personally painted the cartoon, the small mm-hmm. model, mm-hmm. and then his students would have done the grand canvas. Yeah, yeah. You have also part of the Medici cycle there. So, um, yeah, it's it's really first-class museum. Garrett, any, any other thoughts on Munich while you were there? Uh, it was a very convenient um, uh, home base for exploring Bavaria. We went and explored the castles, and we were actually even able to squeeze in a day trip to Salzburg. Mm. It was a very convenient, um, what is it, an hour or one and, and a half, half hours. train ride, yeah. yeah. You know, on the train, it's yeah. a beautiful day, isn't it? Yeah. You just go down to Salzburg. Now, when you think of the art treasures of Munich, I think it's fascinating to remember that this was all threatened in World War II as, as Munich was a very strategic target for the Allies, the sort of the heartland, the homeland, the spiritual capital of, of Nazism from a Hitler point of view. Mm. And it just got pulverized by the bombs in mm. World War II. And when Germany was sorting through the rubble after the war, each city had to decide how mm. it was going to rebuild. All of these were medieval towns that were destroyed. Some of them decided, okay, we're going to take this opportunity to rebuild in the Manhattan style, and that was Frankfurt. And others decided they would rebuild in their medieval style just to maintain their character, and that would have been the Munich style. Yeah. Daniela, is that, do I have that right? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. These are two wonderful examples. Frankfurt went the one way, Munich the other way. And... Um, Yes, it was up to 65% destroyed, Munich. And uh, today when we wander through Munich, we have apparently so much old structures still standing. But actually, no, it's not. It's all, all big part is rebuilt. But fortunately, we had a lot of uh, good photographic material. And so after those photographs taken actually by the Nazis... So the Nazis uh, took these photographs? Yeah. Because and why did they do that? Well, the Nazis decided this is the Nazi capital, so we will not... Uh, show our fear that we will be attacked by the Allies or we will not protect our treasures. So and, they did uh, not evacuate the treasures, exactly. n- not wanting to create a panic. Yeah, yeah, they did it with some paintings, yes. Right. Rare, but with most of it, um, 
They did not, but they took very, very precise pictures of everything and also parts of the residence, the royal residence was... And these photographs, anticipating the destruction of Munich, Mm -hmm. survived Mm -hmm. and were useful in rebuilding the city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Long after the Nazis were gone. Long after the Nazis were gone, and it uh, took a long time. It was not uh, to rebuild Munich as we find it today. Well, it took up until, let's say, 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It was, yeah, 65% destroyed. Garrett, thanks for your call. Well, thanks a lot, Rick. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been celebrating Bavaria and Bavarian culture with Daniela Wiedel. Daniela, let's have a little hypothetical travel image here. You and your your school friends are going to get together for a reunion, and you want to just really celebrate your Bavarian-ness. Where would you go and what would you do? Well, um, I guess I would take uh, my friends. We would go to one of our lakes, to the Walchen Lake, which is about uh, 40 kilometers south of Munich. Uh, we would take a cable car up. This is one of my favorite places. That's uh, I've spent a lot of time there hiking, biking. So we would go up there. There's a wonderful open-air uh, area, and we would sit up there in the sun. We would look o- over the lakes and have the countryside stretching out in front of an us. An open-air restaurant? Or yeah, it's, it's an open-air restaurant. Mm-hmm. And it's like a beer garden. Right. Well, we would sit in the beer garden and uh, look over the countryside, and I guess we would enjoy our wheat beer. <laughs> Your wheat beer? <laughs> yes, we would. We would enjoy that and have a wonderful pretzel and maybe a little bit potato salad with that. That's what I eat when I come home to Bavaria. Potato salad, yes. wheat beer, and a pretzel, pretzel. A big pretzel. On top of a hill. Yes. With Bavarian waitresses in traditional outfits yes. serving you. Yes. And being laid back and relaxed. Enjoying a little Gemütlichkeit. Yes, that's what we would do. Sehr schön. <laughs> Daniela, thank you so much. Let's continue on our theme of visiting Germany and open the phones for the remainder of the hour to hear some of your stories about interacting as an American with the German culture. On your visits to Germany, did you experience any cross-cultural faux pas that are worth writing home about? Care to share them with us? We're at 877-333-RICK, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Jennifer's on the line in Portland, Oregon. Jennifer, thanks for your call. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Do you have some stories about um, struggling to be smooth and together in Germany? Yes. My husband and I decided to stop by this gorgeous bakery, beautiful pastries and whatnot. My husband went to order one, and he said, I would like one of those, and he used his index finger indicating number one. And the woman behind the counter looked completely offended, and her face was just mortifying. We couldn't understand as to what had happened, but we asked again, and she uh, responded, oh, you like one, but she used her thumb. So later on our adventure in Germany, we were talking with this couple, and we're like, we don't understand what happened. And in essence, doing the number one with the index finger is equal to the American version of flipping someone off with the bird in the middle finger. So. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so next time, I suppose you should use your middle finger when ordering one. <laughs> or the thumb. Or rather. the thumb. That's better. Hey, you know, that reminds me of a, of a related faux pas. When I was a kid, I remember we, I was traveling with my parents, and we were in Germany, and we ordered a schnitzel or something holding up one finger, our index finger, mm-hmm. and Germans just assume that's two because you always start counting with your thumb. Thumb would be one, thumb and index fingers two. So if you held up your index finger, they're likely to think you mean you want two of something. Ah, 
clever. So you could actually insult them and get double of what you wanted at the same yes. time. Yes, we could have you could have two pastries <laughs> instead of one. <laughs> two pastries thrown at your face. <laughs> well, Jennifer, you learned and you've shared it. So uh, no more flipping people off innocently in Germany, okay? Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thanks for your story. Mary in St. Louis emails us, and she tells a story of an education she got on her German trip. Mary writes, My modest sister visited a German spa with some friends. She was embarrassed to see people of all ages and body types walking around naked and was intimidated when she realized she was expected to leave her bathing suit behind when using the spa facilities. She was mortified when the attendant, a cranky, wrinkled lady with no teeth, ran after her screaming, Trocken! Trocken! Her knowledge of German language was limited, and she had no idea why she was being singled out naked in front of God and everyone. Turns out it is mandatory to shower before entering the spa, and she was trocken, that means dry, much to the disdain of the snarling attendant. Boy, if you want to feel awkward, if you're not used to running around naked with a bunch of people who are very good at relaxing, with attendants who are very good at keeping everybody in line, go to a spa sometime in Germany. One of the words a lot of Americans know in German is Dummkopf, dumbhead. And a lot of times when I'm traveling, I feel like a dumbhead because I'm in Germany, I don't speak the language, and Germans know what they're doing, and I don't get it right. And it's okay. That's the fun thing about travel. We're all beginners over there. It's like we're in kindergarten and we're learning new tricks. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and right now we're screwing up together in Germany, and it's kind of fun. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us anytime at radio at ricksteves.com. Donna's on the phone in Dallas. Hi, Donna. Thanks for your call. Oh, thank you for speaking to me, Rick. Yeah. Do you have a lesson you've learned overseas? When I was in college, my roommate and I um, went to Salzburg for a semester, and we were trying to speak German, and we went to a big beer hall where we were supposed to meet some friends, and uh, we were walking around. When everyone talked to us, we kept saying, Versuchen ein Freund, Versuchen ein Freund, which we thought meant we're looking for our friend, and we were actually saying we're looking for a friend. So everyone kept saying, we'll be your friend, we'll be your friend. You know, that's a pretty good line. If you don't know much German, I'm looking yeah, for well, a friend. We were brand new over there at the time. So did you get a friend? Uh, <laughs> I'm sure we could have gotten some eventually. <laughs> and did you, you found your friend eventually? Yes. And how was the rest of your trip? Oh, it was wonderful. We had another incident where we were chased by police. We thought it was just a car coming towards us with light shining and men yelling and they chased us towards the house we were living in, and when we jumped over the fence and got inside, we found out that we had been walking across the construction site for the new opera hall, and they thought we were stealing building material. Oh, no, and they, the police chased you all the way back to your house? Yes. You thought these were dangerous people chasing you? We thought so. We oh. didn't know what they were doing chasing us. Well, you could have just said, uh, uh, wir suchen ein Freund. We could have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hey, well, it's, you survived your faux pas, and I think you had a good trip to boot, so that's great. Thanks for your call. Thank you. And Jeff's on the line in Easton, Maryland. Jeff, thanks for your call. I had called uh, to talk about my son, who had been in Germany during the summer of his junior year in high school. It's part of an exchange program. He was with his host family on the 4th of July, and his host mother made a sandwich and some picnic items for he and some of his friends to take to a local park. During the day, he ate some of the sandwich, but didn't finish everything. And when he came home that evening, he disposed of it, thinking that it uh, probably had spoiled. 
Later on, his host mother took him aside and said she'd retrieved what was left of the sandwich and that they never threw anything away because they'd learned during and just after the war how important food was and that they would have starved had it not been for the American soldiers and the relief programs. And ever since, they've been extremely frugal with the use of food and resources. So given this lesson that he learned both about history and culture, he later had the opportunity to come back during his junior year in college and study at a German university. Reconnected with them, and they <clears throat> demonstrated through their generosity that that faux pas had not only uh, not created a problem in their relationship, but it actually strengthened the relationship between them. And they subsequently loaned him a bicycle, which, when stolen, they loaned him another. He subsequently spent his vacation times with them during that year, learning, I think some valuable lessons about German culture and the experience of Germans that had gone through the war and the aftermath of the war. Boy, you know, that's a very good testimony to the value of foreign study programs, isn't it? It's more it really than, is. It's more than just picking up some history or some language skills. They learn who we are, and we learn who they are, and in the case of an American in Germany, we get a little sense of what it must have been like for those people to live through that war and, and the hunger of the cold winters when they were uh, depending on allies to keep them out of starvation. Yes, his host family, we subsequently had a chance to spend some time with them on several occasions, and it's really amazing how appreciative and sensitive they were to the American soldiers and the relief program after the war, and it was really a very valuable lesson for my son to learn. You know, this just reminds me so much of my friend Harry Jung, who is a friend of mine on the Rhine River. I, I just pulled this out of a, a journal that I had written, but he's referring to these same years that you're talking about in Germany after mm -hmm. the war. He writes, The years after the war were hungry years. He said, I would wake in the middle of the night and search the cupboards. There was no fat, no bread, no nothing. I licked spilled grain from the cupboard. We had friends from New York, and they sent coffee, which we would trade with farmers for grain. For this I have always been thankful. Now when I think of what the Nazis did to Germany, I remember a fine soup cooked by 30 people can be spoiled by one man with a handful of salt. So he has this notion that the Americans were the compassionate ones and sent right. him these care packages that got him through those difficult times. Yeah, the, the friends that we have in Germany, I think, feel exactly the same way. And as, as you say, it's hard for us to imagine that kind of deprivation and suffering. Well, that's great that your son has that as a lasting souvenir and lesson from his time over there. Jeff, thanks for your call. All right, Rick. Good talking with you. You too. James in Louisville emailed us, and he's got a little story about a German faux pas he committed. Let me read it to you. We accidentally drove up the walk, or the road, reserved for horse carriages to Neuschwanstein Castle. A group of elderly people flagged us down. We thought they were going to chastise us, because this was for uh, taxis and horses only. But instead, an old woman said, Ein person kaputt. I speak no German, but understood. We welcomed her and an old man into the car and drove up to the castle front door. We drove back down to the applause of the rest of the group. By the way, uh, that's a great story. If you've been to Neuschwanstein, you know it's a long hike up to the Disney castle of southern Germany there. There's this one paved road that you can pay to go on a clip-clop horse carriage or a bus. It looks like James accidentally drove up that walk, and you get halfway up and you realize, oh, this is not for us. Boldly, James made it up to the top, and he took a person who needed some help along with him. I 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online, including listener feedback and archived audio on demand. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His now classic Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.